John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 431.PS8403, certificate number 27603, the European Starling. The European Starling is also known as the common Starling. And the problem is that, at least in our era, it's much too common and not nearly European enough. Hmm. Uh, this is a story that begins back in 1890. On March 6th, 1890, there's an eccentric, uh, wealthy pharmaceutical manufacturer in New York named Eugene Shifflin, who goes to Central Park because he is a man with a dream. <laughs> he, he's a man with a very weird dream. Funny that, a, that an eccentric pharmaceutical magnate would also be a guy with a weird dream. To be honest with you, the weird dream is the only evidence I have that he's eccentric. Oh. I have no idea if he, like, also dresses up as a bear and runs down, you know. We, come can, on, on, we can only hope, yeah. Uh, but on this particular day, he's in service of this dream that has been animating him for many years, which is, for some reason, to introduce to North America every species of bird that appears in the works of William Shakespeare. He's a lover, as so many of us are, of both Shakespeare and birds. Well, sure, and that was when we were we hadn't yet decided how exactly we were going to make America all the way through, and that, that I'm sure that made perfect sense. I think it did. He was a member uh, of a society called something like the American Acclimatization Society, which really was like, how do we get all the good stuff from Europe into this new sort of suspect shabby country? Yeah, right. The good stuff from Europe, apparently, like, like the Irish. <laughs> like, and the Irish of birds, the European starling. Oh. All right, go on. So he wants to introduce every bird from Shakespeare. And unfortunately for posterity, in Henry IV, Part One, Shakespeare brings up starlings, which in his time were famous for their sense of mimicry. Like a starling, it doesn't just have one call, it can have dozens. It can make like any noise. Do you have access to the Shakespeare quote? Yeah. So uh, early in the play, uh, Hotspur is very angry at King Henry. He wants King Henry to ransom one of Henry's political enemies, a guy named Edmund Mortimer. And Henry forbids him to talk about this. And so in the manner of a Shakespeare play, as soon as Henry turns his back, Hotspur turns to the audience and starts scheming mm. about how he's going to keep uh, bugging the king about Mortimer. And one of his plans, one of his very improbable plans, he says, Nay, I'll have a starling shall be taught to speak nothing but Mortimer and give it him to keep his anger still in motion. Mortimer. 
Mortimer. Yeah, so as, as any of us would do in this situation, yeah. Hosmer wants to train a, a hypothetical bird <laughs> to say the word Mortimer and bother the king with that. Right. Quoth the starling. Mortimer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he if he just thinks that'll annoy the king, or if the king will eventually change his mind. Hey, this bird is onto something, right. Mortimer. Anyway, but the point of it is that the word starling only appears once in the, you know the million million word corpus of Shakespeare. But that was enough for Eugene Schieflin. Shakespeare had starlings. Damn it, so must America. Let me ask: Was Eugene Schieflin responsible for the introduction of many other birds from Shakespeare into Central Park? I don't know if there's any. Uh, I don't know of any evidence. The Starling was his his only contribution to this game. His greatest work. It's like, play the hits, Eugene. <laughs> Free bird. So then what happened? Free Starling. <laughs> uh, he releases, uh, I don't know, like 30 or 40 birds into Central Park and uh, doesn't hear back. And I think a few months later does it again, releases a bunch more. And a matter of years later, he uh, learns that there is actually a pair of starlings, European starlings, nesting in the eaves of the Museum of Natural History across from the park. And this, I can only imagine, was a, a, an amazing day wow. for our hero, Mr. Eugene uh, Schieffler. Well, I know. Can you imagine a better place for them than the eaves of the Museum of Natural History? He just loves it. You yeah. know, starlings have come to his country. Can you imagine being a passenger on the ship that has, like, between 60 and 100 starlings on it multiple times. It's true. He had to import these from somewhere. Yeah, right. I mean, he had to, first of all, capture 80 starlings, let's say, cage them, bring them. It might not be him personally. Well, right. The American Acclimatization Society <laughs> might be a, a, a vast <laughs> a vast mechanism. He might have underlings uh-huh. combing England for right, let's assume. Let's assume he's the, employing, the starlings. employing people in like cloth caps to do this work. So for him, it's just a whim. It's, a, it's an artistic fancy. He's, right. he's a rich guy with a weird hobby. Right. No idea that this will change the course of history. Because what has happened in the succeeding 100 and, you know, from where we sit, 127 years for you listening to us, this is, know, this is centuries old. Yeah, we, we don't know what your starling situation is. Right. But in our world, it's not great, actually. From the, that one breeding pair in the eaves of the museum, there are now 220 million starlings, European starlings in America. Uh, you know, if you see just some random gray spotted bird flying around near your ha- home or in the country, it's probably a starling because they have come to dominate the country. They, uh, they're really bad for native songbird populations because they're nest bandits. What? They're nest bandits. Say, uh, what? So tell me more. They uh, don't like other birds. They don't like building nests. You know, they can nest anywhere. They'll nest in a little hole, which so, uh, you know, newly deforested suburbanized America is great for them. You know, any gas station or porch or nook of your house, you know, starlings can find a hole there. But those are in short supply. So what they will do is they'll, they'll, they'll wait at the entrance to a hole. And if a bluebird or a woodpecker or whatever sticks its head out, the starling will just impale it with its beak until it dies, kill the eggs if there's any eggs, and just take over the hole. I dated somebody like this. This is almost an exact description of our relationship. And starlings are also super loud and super annoying. They are because they'll, you know, they can mimic any call. So, you know, they make these sort of gross noises. In, you know, automobile heavy America, they now make car-centric noises. They'll imitate the noises of crossing signals or of car engines. You know, if starlings live near an interstate, will just sound like cars whizzing by. <laughs> uh, because that's absolutely true. They, you know, they're, they just want to fit in. You know, aren't they, aren't we all starlings at heart like that a little bit? That's not. Uh, annoying at all. Although now that you're saying, aren't we all starlings? Of course, the most famous human starling is Clarice Starling. From the Silence of the Lambs. Right. 
she's a, she's a bit of a predator. She seems harmless on the outside, but when she gets her teeth in a in a case, uh-huh. her beak. <laughs> she gets her beak in a case. She, there we go. Uh-huh. When she gets a beak in her case, she doesn't like it. You know, Lecter finds out she's a force to be reckoned with. I, right. I wonder if that's what the reference is. She's going to not only not only uh, kill Lecter, but all of the eggs in his nest. So the 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 victims of the European starling are. All of us. Many. Well, yeah. I mean, humans included. Birds are, birds, bird populations have been decimated. They, they're believed to have contributed to the extinction of the Carolina parakeet and the passenger pigeon. So, you know, whole species are on their hit list. Now, um, I, I thought that the passenger pigeon uh, went extinct entirely as a result of like wanton human hunting. Did the starling really play a role? Are we absolved somewhat of the responsibility of destroying the passenger pigeon? I don't know. Like they once, you know, they said they would once fly overhead for days, right? Isn't right. that what I say the passenger They're pigeon? Like black in the sky. A flock would start and then it would just be like twilight for like eight hours as they passed over. You yeah. know, there were so many. And we they were delicious, so we ate them all. It, it, it always amazed me that we could even conceivably have killed that many birds. Now thinking that maybe the starlings are responsible makes me feel like we owe fewer reparations to the passenger pigeon community. I don't think you should feel better because think about this. Like we also created the starlings, you know? Uh, Like at least the people shooting the pigeons were like, I know I'm killing this guy. You know, this was just some out-of-touch rich guy who was like, you know what the world needs? These two starlings, Dick and Betsy, and he has no idea. I I imagine sitting in the drawing room of some fancy lady's house on the Upper East Side talking about having introduced all the birds – from Shakespeare's plays into Central Park, I think that was probably a pretty winning line at the time, right? When people were dropping handkerchiefs on the floor as a supreme mating signal. If I were in that Edith Wharton drawing room, like, uh-huh. I think my monocle would fall into my soup. <laughs> if, some, if some strange man in a goatee started bragging about his successful ornithological acclimatizations. Almost surely he had a Trotsky goatee. Almost surely. <laughs> but, and as you say, right, our listeners, you know, prognosticating to their unknowable future, the starling could be the only bird. That is quite possible. In the Americas, all the birds, the starling, I mean, they could have supplanted the eagle as the national bird. And it's sort of easy to hate them because they're not particularly attractive and they kill beautiful red-headed woodpeckers and bluebirds and martins with beautiful songs. And it really is like, oh, there goes the neighborhood. Here comes these ugly gray spotted things. Can you name one good thing about starlings? Do they have a redeeming feature? Mm, can you wow. make them into a pie? So you actually can eat them. That's, a, that's something that's been proposed by the government as a means of controlling them. But you have to – the meat is uh, so tough that you have to soak it in a soda and salt, like a lye solution hmm. for hours and hours. Delicious. In hope that you can make it into some kind of pate or pie that will take, taste vaguely like quail or something, you know? Well, well, that whole like let's eat the pests thing really worked with the nutria. <laughs> Although we'll save that for, uh, for a later episode. I don't actually know. Are nutria not delicious? Uh, well, you know, nutria look like, like hideous beavers. Right. I saw, Hideous rat beavers. I've seen them crawling out of the river in Florence and they are – it's a horror movie. It was suggested that you – that we eat the nutria and also make coats out of nutria. Like – We use every part of the nutria. Our, our people use every part of the nutria and yet no one wants anything to do with anything to do with the nutria, right? If somebody offered you a nutria coat, I think at first you might think, what a beautiful fur coat. And then all you have to do is see a picture of a nutria and you're like, I'm wearing a rat coat. But I would still eat it. It's you would so, eat it? It sounds like it would be full of nutrients, mm-hmm. for one thing. Mm-hmm. It sounds a little bit like Nutella. Mm-hmm. 
probably doesn't taste like Nutella. I think it. I think if you were in Louisiana, you could probably find Nutria at like a Top Chef style Emile Lagrasse Tyson. What's that guy? Emil. Emil. <laughs> the famous chef and astrophysicist. <laughs> Neil Lagrasse. Emil. Emeril. Emeril Lagrasse Tyson. You did it. If you went into his restaurant and he would put his bam sauce on it, and it, I, I think you can get it down there. I think it's still for sale. And I think they're still trying to push it on people as like a fancy thing. I've never been to a place where I was trying to, no, anyone was trying to trick me into eating Nutria. They'll put pickle on your fries, but <laughs> you, won't eat, you won't eat a tricked up Nutria. You know, speaking of food, the European starling has also been a disaster for the crops we eat. Uh, let's talk about that after this break. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Well, that was a refreshing break. Do you feel refreshed? Slightly. This is not appetizing what I'm about to say next. Uh, starlings are fairly disgusting birds in yeah. terms of hygiene. Oh, dear. So they will just die. They'll eat everything. You know, uh, one of those, have you seen those massive flocks of starlings oh, that, sure. you know, they, they sort of turn direction in the air as one? Well, I have some questions about that, but yeah, go on about their grossness. They're called mummerations of starlings. It, it can be like a flock of thousands or even up to a million birds. It's a mummeration? A mummeration. Are there... It, is that a word, a coinage just for starlings, or are there other mummerations? I think it's just starlings. You know how in medieval English they had these oddly specific collective nouns that you would never actually use? Like, sure. Look, it's a sleuth of bears over there. It's right. a whole sleuth of them. I thought it was just one or two, but it's a sleuth. Right, or like a clam stain of doors. Is that a real one? No. A clam stain <laughs> of doors? No, a, a group of doors is just called a group of doors. But if you were to group them together, if they were to do something interesting, I would I would propose that it be called a clam stain. That's what you would call a group of doors? A group of doors doing something interesting and coordinated. What if it's just Raymond Zarek, but he's still talking about what Jim was like? Is that <sighs> is that still called you know, a... the, the thing about Jim is he dared to dance the shaman's dance. <laughs> but I don't want to get into that right now. Uh, can you briefly explain how birds are able to perform this I extraordinary uh, coordinated flying? I think it's not well known um, because it, it happens so simultaneously. I think the working theory is that they must be watching certain point birds whose job is to signal the next thing because it doesn't ripple through the flock. Right. Everybody you know? moves simultaneously. Yeah. So it's like the blue angels. Yeah. It's just like the blue angels if there were like a million of them. Right. And here's the thing about one of these gigantic flocks of starling. They will just eat you out of house and home. Uh, they have been known to eat 20 tons of potatoes in a day. 
Um, How could a starling even begin to eat an ounce of potato? There's a lot of them. They're not each eating, uh, you know, they're not each sitting down with a baked potato. Well, I know, but potatoes are in the ground. So first of all, they have to descend on a potato field, extricate the potatoes, which isn't easy even for a human. Maybe they're eating harvested potatoes out of whatever kind of uh, container the harvested potatoes go into. It's a clam stain. A clam stain of potatoes. A clam stain of potatoes. I don't think that's actually right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hash of potatoes. A hash of potatoes. It's a, I don't know what it is. So they eat food, not just like bugs. They'll eat, so at first farmers were like, yay, they're going to eat the bugs. At least we have millions of these birds we don't like, but at least they're eating our bugs. But they quickly started eating the grain and the seeds and stuff instead. So... You know, the, the grain that the farmers were going to, the dairy farmers were going to feed to their cows, you know, the seeds for, that were going to be planted in the field. You know, the starlings are just like a biblical plague whipping through. And yeah. they poop everywhere too. You know, they will, uh, they'll defile the crops with their droppings, which often contain E. coli or histoplasmosis. So they can also cause human diseases. Um, there was a headline, I think, in Rome last year where so many starlings were pooping on the street that uh, cars would just slide around in the muck of it. Ah. Passengers were falling over, cars were swerving into curbs. Uh, you know, I was about to say the starlings were going to have blood on their hands, but they actually do. Do they have that, that toxoplasmosis where you, they make you think that you want more of them in your house because you keep breathing their starling litter? Do they, do they give you that? Sort like of? if you're an old lady who has 150 starlings? Yeah, do they give you that delusion where you're like, I love my little kitty birds. I don't know if that's a thing. Wait, is that what, is that how toxoplasmosis works? It, yeah, makes, it, it makes you want more cats? Yeah. Yeah. It gets inside your, it gets inside your head and somehow like the little, the little worms burrow into your pleasure centers and say, cats are amazing. That's genius. It's totally great. Well, how would it know what its vector was going to be? Like that thing evolved. Like there were ones that made you want more dogs and fish and iguanas and those all died out. And luckily the kind that make you want more cats, like... That's what survives. Yeah, I mean, cats are the are almost the only animal that we routinely allow to sit on our faces, <laughs> right? Like, name another animal that everybody kind of just generally lets sit on their face. I hope I have an animal that'll just show me its like butthole every morning. <laughs> yeah, oh, look! Put my nose right in it. It's a cat, and and it's because they they also communicate this like parasite that it's like oh this whole like symbiosis. It's parasite. It relies on the. On the person, the person relies on the cat, the cat relies on the parasite. But what are we getting out of it? I guess the joy of having a house full of cat, cat urine. Yeah, right. No, the cat is, um, the cat communicates to us that we do not matter, which is, you know, it keeps our egos in check. It's <laughs> like a, the cat is a Buddhist implement. It's hard to see the evolutionary purpose of such a Buddhist implement. It's a blunt instrument of Buddhism. So I said that starlings have blood on their talons, and it's mm -hmm. not just from crashing Alfa Romeos in Rome. Uh, Aviation experts call them feathered bullets because they are denser and uh, I think faster than most birds that can get sucked into a plane propeller or engine. So they're really, really dangerous around airfields. And of course, there's 220 million of them. So among the places they are, runways. Is this uh, the, are these the birds that, that downed Captain McSorley's uh, uh, Mary McCheese's airplane? Yes, Tom Hanks played Mary McCheese, <laughs> the heroic Mary McCheese, in a movie about a hamburger mare who lands an airplane on the East River. So to our listeners in the, in the far distant future, this is a recent event uh, where uh, these, uh, they were starlings? They, in this case, no. Those oh. were gulls, I think. Gulls? They weren't gulls? My God, gulls flying into an airplane engine, that's 
pretty grotesque and grizzly. Those are big birds. They're geese, actually. Oh, geese. Also big birds. Now that I think about it, they were geese. But you know what? Geese are the most unlikable birds. I do not mourn a single one of those geese. I've just been telling you that, like, starlings will give you E. coli and kill cute baby birds and make Italian sports cars, Vespas crash. And you're like, yeah, geese are worse. Geese are worse. Have you ever interacted with a gaggle of geese? They're so mean. (laughs) They're the absolute worst creatures. They scared my, you know, a, a goose or a Canada goose or a swan walks up to your little kid and they're the same height. Yeah. And then they start hissing and batting their head at you. Yeah. It's like a horror movie. I was walking through a small village in Romania once many, many years ago. And I turned a corner and the street was full of white geese. And they advanced upon me as though to prey upon me. And there was nowhere for me to go. And they backed me down this alley. Onk, 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 with their like evil beady eyes. And from that time, I mean, I have eventually escaped because I'm here speaking to you now. But from that point on, I was an enemy of all geese. A, mur- a mummeration of geese? A sw- sworn enemy of, mum- of any mummeration. A conglomeration of geese came after you? I should, I should finish our thought, though, that this was an incident where, a, uh, where an airplane crashed onto the Hudson River in New York City, all of which is probably underwater in your future world. Right. Uh, and nearby, another past city from our era, Boston, is where this Starling-related incident took place in 1960. Uh, Eastern Flight 375 only made it off the runway for uh, six seconds before it plowed into, you know, set, it was an old turboprop plane, 60 or 70 starlings go right into the propeller, and six seconds later, the plane dives toward Winthrop Harbor, and uh, 60 people died, I believe. 10 people in the tail section survived. Everybody in the front of the plane was killed by these murderous, filthy starlings. Well, suicide birds at that point. I don't think they knew. Are you implying they knew? Who knows what they knew? I mean, this is the thing about spooky action at a distance. It's not really about spooky action at a distance, but this is the thing about collective intelligence, which is that we don't know what the ants know. I mean, maybe future people know what the ants know, but we don't know what the ants maybe know. Maybe even if the individual, maybe it's a collective intelligence. Like even yeah. if the uh, individual starlings did not want to die, the mummeration commands. You know, right, the, right. The starling brain is in the mummeration. Sure, it's the agency of the mummeration. <laughs> <laughs> so starlings are, are murdering people at least since 1960, in addition to the disease they've spread. So it really makes your idea of Eugene Shifflin at this dinner party a lot less cuddly. Well, you know, like so many things in human history, Eugene Shifflin was long dead before the uh, consequences of his blithe actions were revealed. Nobody ever has to face the music, huh? Well, that's the terrible thing. And I feel like, I feel like there is no, well, first of all, we all know there's no justice. But how do you retroactively apply like the censure that we want to apply to the Shifflin man, I guess what we do is we look up the Shifflin family. And visit vengeance upon his descendants to the fourth and fifth generation? Yeah, just keep like, I don't know, just fill their yard full of geese. Fill their yard full of starling droppings. (laughs) Watch them slide around. Put it on YouTube. (laughs) Hey, kids. Although it did seem to me as you were describing it that if you held an annual race in the streets of Florence where you coated the streets with starling droppings and then had a Vespa race, I would watch that all day. That would be pretty great. Well, this is the, we're seeding the pot here for, for the future. If it is an advanced civilization that receives our messages, they'll already have starling dropping races. Clearly, any sufficiently advanced civilization would be racing Vespas in bird poop. Vintage Vespas, hopefully. Sure. I mean, sure, their taste will have evolved as well. Right. 
Or it's a civilization that's only just now recovering the technology even to listen to this recording, in which case, let me make a suggestion to you. This is really a sign of an, of an, advanced, an advanced knowledge. If that's true, if they're really pulling themselves out of the ashes of whatever cataclysm awaits us, then maybe they need those bird droppings. It's, maybe it's a, it's a food staple for them. Well, now, wait a minute. I happen to know that bird guano is an excellent and very expensive fertilizer that is harvested from uh, various rocky outcroppings where things like pelicans and penguins and, uh, and so forth and thus on. Right. In the South Atlantic, it's full of – or South Pacific, it's so, full of phosphates. Yeah, right. And, and so they're all, there's a whole industry of people cultivating and, and harvesting guano. How is it that we cannot make a collective sort of starling – like poop shoot, where we're where we're where we're collecting this right in the collective starling poop shoot. <laughs> what if we built an enormous hollow tower like a silo? I am not convinced that all bird droppings are uh, are equally good. Like, uh-huh. is it possible that there's these seabirds because of their fish diet or whatever are producing the exact kind of poop the industry yearns for, and yet all over America there's starlings that are just producing useless poop? I do believe that. Ground fish guts is one of the big, that's a big fish or a big uh, fertilizer industry. Sure, that's what Squanto taught us. And so I think you're right. Huh. And I think that is a good uh, opportunity to take a little break. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Well, so, uh, Ken, this is, uh, Starlings is like a kind of a ridiculous example because it, it is such, the, the impetus for it was so Stupid. Like, it's just stupid, right? Like just the the unique folly of one dingaling who didn't have who had just enough ornithological knowledge to know what a starling was and not enough to know that or I guess people didn't know about ecosystems in the way that we do now. Right. But I there think... are plenty of other examples, right? Like zebra mussels showed up accidentally in bilge water. I think nutria came because they were perceived as uh like a fur animal. Yeah, and uh, sometimes they'll bring something in to kill something else, right? You know, uh, right? You know, they introduce something in Australia to kill all the rabbits they introduced, and then you know, the, the snakes or whatever they are go crazy. I know the Germans brought raccoons to Germany, I think during the interwar years as a like a sport animal, like a hunting animal. Oh, really? And then the raccoons went everywhere, as raccoons will do. And I think the German word for them now is like burglar bear or masked. <laughs> masked bear or something or like, I don't know, mini bear. 
and that caused World War II. And that basically caused it was one of the one of the reasons the Germans that, were so annoyed at somebody going through their garbage cans that they were like Americans. But there were there have been other species introduced with good intentions that ended up being a plague. Yeah, uh, and sometimes we don't even care, you know, like it's nobody really thinks about what would happen. Like when they dug the Suez Canal in uh, in 1869, nobody realized, oh, wait, we're connecting the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea for the first time since, you know, the late Pleistocene or whatever. And and, and what was the, what did that intermixture produce? So gradually the saltier water, I think, from the Indian Ocean flows up into the Mediterranean and starts colonizing, starts turning the eastern Mediterranean into a little arm of the Red Sea, and animals follow right along, corals and jellyfish and fish, and they start eating the native population. Um, there's like poisonous fugu pufferfish in the Mediterranean now that nobody knows about. You know, fishermen could just like eat some poisonous sushi fish and die Whoa! because it just came from the Indian Ocean. And so does the saltwater flow up the Suez because of some kind of like chemical, some sort of chemistry, like the where the saltier water like is pulled to the fresher water? Some kind of osmosis? Yeah. Maybe. There's no locks in the Suez Canal, which is weird. Right. It's not like the Panama Canal. There's no bears. They just made a, a big trench, essentially. Because it's just a big flat desert. Right. Suez. And there used to be some like really hypersaline lakes in the way that would sort of keep the, the, the difference between the two water ecosystems. And those gradually just sort of filtered through until they became the same salinity and temperature as the water on both sides. And now it's just one big sea. And Egypt wants to widen it again, which means more and more species are going to get in and they're probably going to wreak havoc because they have no natural predators there. And so in our experience, like for instance, right now you and I are visiting Georgia during a great tour of the uh, American states, the extant 50 states of our time. We love traveling the highways and byways of this great land. And we see here the uh, the kudzu, which is all over the country here. And um, like it's enveloping, I guess, natural herbs and spices. Gives you that beautiful aged look of an REM record cover. That's right. I, You know, one time I said to Peter Buck that his music sounded to me like the sound of kudzu, and he was utterly unimpressed. Maybe many people had made that observation before. Mm, I don't know. I think maybe it was just in, it was encoded in his and my relationship that I had already talked to him too much, and it was time for him to turn around and walk. John, let me interrupt you. You may need to explain to Future Earth uh, how it is that you were uh, hanging out with Peter Buck, a celebrated late 20th century rock guitarist. Yeah, well, I, I mean, we haven't really described our biographies to to the future quite as much as we should because I'm kind of assuming that there there our are, future listeners are... There are statues of us still, well, either, they, either in the rubble or in the avenue of uh, flying cars. You know, there are so many artists in human history who were underappreciated in their time who then later were discovered by more enlightened future people. And then their entire catalog was uh, introduced into the canon and they became, you know, the great artists of, of our eras. I'm assuming that that happened to me and my band, The Long Winters, because we were criminally underappreciated in our time, uh, early 21st century. Uh, and I think it's just because we were ahead of our time. And that's why I feel such a connection to our listeners, whom I'm only imagining, because I know that their tastes surpass the tastes of my own people. I love how you appreciate your hypothetical fans. You owe it all to your hypothetical fans, don't you? Well, I'm hoping either that we are communicating to people who are living in a completely pacifist, 
and utopian community of pure energy. And something from your last album is the Earth Anthem. Right. Powered by Planetary the, Anthem. The dulcet rock tones of my super good indie rock band, The Long Winters, or they are people just crawling up out of the mud who have found our recordings written on gold discs, have reverse engineered a way to play them, and now are thinking to themselves, I've got to get these Long Winters records. I don't really like where this train of thought is going as far as my legacy is concerned because I'm super popular and successful now. Right, right. It's trickier for me. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword, being, being such a big deal. You're popular for having been on a, on a television game show, which is a... Which, which, is, which is the pinnacle of, uh, of achievement in our society, obviously. Pinnacle of our... Of, of, of our intellectual giants. In the late 20th century, I would say, right? Like, uh, it was sort of even by the time you were cresting the wave, it, it had already lost some of its Right, energy. right. Just like you at Indie Rock. <laughs> no, no, no. I was <laughs> central. I was central to the movement. Right in the heart, the dead heart of Indie Rock. Uh, where did kudzu come from? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I think it was a, a similar sort of artistic folly. It was brought in to show off at some kind of international exhibition, like, look at this amazing Japanese ornamental, you know? What if we had some of these in our gardens? And it turns out kudzu is incredibly aggressive. Right. And now the whole American <laughs> South is one big kudzu <laughs> garden. One day we will find a way to process that kudzu into wine. <laughs> and then the South will rise again. Well, in our own Northwest, right, I was just uh, I was just picking delicious Himalayan blackberries, which are one of the greatest foods of all time. And it's just too bad that they are connected to these like living barbed wire strands. They are that, unbelievable. I don't know if our listeners have seen. Maybe there's giant mega plants in their future world as well. But uh, these things are huge thickets. Yeah. Taller than them. And they'll just, they'll just grow to the sky. They look like the, the brambles at the end of Disney Sleeping Beauty that wrap up the whole castle. And they will just grow like a foot uh, a week if you let them. Oh, faster than that. Don't. Faster than that. I go into the backyard and the, the uh, blackberries are like up over the fence and down. Like they in will day reach and around and grab stuff. Yeah. It's almost like they're essentially, you know, obviously nobody can see this because of space and time, but I've got blackberry scratches yeah. all over my upper arms because of picking them with my kids and battling the ones in my yard. I do too because they're irresistible. The blackberries are so delicious, but they're awful. And I think that people that are into restoring natural habitats in Washington State Battle that because, oh, did you know, Washington State actually has a native blackberry species. Oh, really? Which is a ground, basically a ground cover blackberry that produces not these enormous fruit of the Himalayan blackberry, but delicious fruit that are kind of like salmon berries. You know, when you're out hiking in the forest and you find salmon berries. They just look like unripe raspberries and yeah. they kind of taste like unripe raspberries. Yeah, they look like white raspberries. You're like, the Indians had to eat these. Sorry, guys. It was probably amazing con considering like the, the rest of their diet was shellfish. Sure. There was no, you know, think about a time with no snacks, no sugar. Like I had the most amazing treat, a salmon berry. It was slightly sweet. What a nightmare. Like for them, like their taste buds aren't ready for it. I'm sure it's an explosion of flavor to eat a salmon berry back then. Well, you know, I'm not some salmon berry hater like it sounds you are. <laughs> but I, I think the na the native blackberries of the Pacific Northwest are perfectly great, delicious blackberries that we just don't notice because the Himalayan blackberries are so aggressive. And I don't know whether someone brought them in as a ornamental or as like, these are great. I'm going to bring them back to America or whether they came in Bilgewater, although you wouldn't take a ship from the Him Himalayas. It'd be tricky. But I do think they came in a, I think it's believed they came in some kind of imported thing. Oh, really? Like yeah. in, a, in a vase? Yeah. <laughs> a vase. <laughs> I don't know if they're stowaways or if somebody was like, I want blackberries. 
But yeah, are, so are the ones, are the blackberries you like buy in a store, are those Himalayan blackberries? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So they're the best ones. They're great. Except I mean, unless you like any other plant because they will take over an entire landscape. Yeah, or unless you have an acre that you're trying to have be anything other than 100 feet of mown grass and then nine-tenths of an acre of crazy blackberries the rest of the year. Do you know what you do in Seattle if you have blackberries? You get goats. Because oh, yeah. they will, you just put the goats in the, the blackberries and they will gradually whittle it away. They'll eat anything and they don't mind these incredible barbed, you know, Himalayan blackberry thorns look like they're out of a cartoon. It's just insane. Yeah, but this is the classic example of introducing a species to combat another species. And then pretty soon you have goats. You're afraid the goats are going to take yeah. over? Your whole neighborhood is full of goats. There are goats on the roof. There are goats on your car. Goats There's are twining around trees. Goat poop everywhere. Your Vespa Sliding is Sliding around in goat poop. REM record covers that's just goats Ugh. everywhere underfoot. Have you spent any time with goats? Uh, no. People don't like them because they have the rectangular eyeballs and they think it's the devil. But right. I, don't, I don't want to blame an animal for the shape of its eyeballs. That seems a little superficial. My sense is that goats pee on themselves in order to be seductive to other goats so that there's constantly sort of a, like an ongoing sort of urine vibe, which I mean, also I think is a little off-putting. I've never read that, but I also now assume that's true. Right. That well, goats are just soaked in urine all the time. Sure. You heard it uh, on, a, on a recording where two people were talking. It has to be true. It's, it all makes sense. It's the pheromones that attract the mate. I can see that. Certainly a goaty mate. I mean, think about think – well, Presumably these goats do want to mate with other goats. They're not looking around for a, a zebra mussel or a human or a Himalayan blackberry to uh, consort with. What is the mythological creature that most re closely resembles a goat? Isn't a satyr like half man, half goat? Yeah. And what kind of personality does a satyr have? He's a, he's ribald. Yeah. He's, he's raunchy. He's a little randy. He's raunchy. He's randy. He's, he likes uh, the company of the ladies. He does. And he's a little stinky and gross. That's right. But they're, so, they're into it is the idea. The, in the forest, you know, you can release your inhibitions and, and follow the stinky dancing goat with the flute. Right. You're, Just like all the Greek women apparently wanted to do. Well, everybody wants to let their hair down and go rut in the forest with someone that pees on themselves. It is funny that they have these fantasies about wanting to go a little wild in the forest, so they invent half animal creatures to do it with. Yeah. As you would. You, of course, I want to have go have sex in the forest. What if there was a dude with goat genitals there? Right. You know, that, that's the logical next step in that thought progression. Our future listeners may actually be half human, half goat. They might find this incredibly racist that we're making jokes about satyrs and centaurs. Yeah, but yeah, they're going to recognize that we're from a we're from a distant past where we did not have the sensitivity and awareness. They did not call them GMO Americans back then. That's right. But, you know, speaking of that, like now that we have our perspective, it's easy to laugh at this yo-yo, um, you know, decimating America with his filth birds mm. um, just on a whim. Mm. But it's interesting to think, what are these things we're doing now that might have these unintended consequences down the line? You know, which of my actions have some unpredictable footprint a century hence. What's my equivalent of stepping on the butterfly and raising up a dictator, you know? Well, I mean, without getting too socio-anthropological, you know, our era, our generation is all about intervening around the globe to improve conditions, right? We're always improving. We're, we're bringing clean water and sanitation and education throughout the globe, but we have no data on what that actually long-term will produce. And it may produce wars over natural resources that never would have occurred otherwise. It may incite long dormant territorial disputes or cultural disputes that 
that were dormant because there just wasn't the kind of access to um to the finer things let's say and uh and so all that stuff i think i mean you know what if you look at all of the revolutions of the 19th and 20th century every one of them was utopian in its genesis right there there wasn't a single revolution that happened with the with the stated goal of making things worse right nobody's ever like this will throw a wrench in the works. <laughs> yeah. Everybody will, needs to take a big step back. This will make me and my friends unhappy. <laughs> no, every revolution has this has this goal of of finally bringing uh, peace and prosperity. Although millions of humans have failed at this, I, the revolutionary, know the one change it will actually make things yeah, work. That's right. So I think the 20th century is proof positive that the best intentions can often produce, let's say, mass death. There's just so many of us. Like, I'm skeptical of the idea that we can even, you know, like, there's nothing we can do at this point that is, uh, you know, hygienic and uncontroversial and, you know, returns uh, anything to its natural Edenic state. There's just too many people. Uh, you know, everything we do is going to make trouble. I remember reading about how even wind farms, you know, you put enough of them up and it actually changes the wind. You know, all the energy that would be coming into the wind is going into electricity. Guess what? You've just changed the weather. And now maybe your crops aren't getting rain anymore. Like you have, you have made climate change by redirecting the wind into your power lines. Yeah, that's how the Sahara Desert formed. It used to be uh, like a swampy utopia there full of giant beasts. And then, uh, then whoever those uh, initial Saharans were, they started harnessing the wind and I always, the waves. I always think about that every time, you know, Superman or whoever redirects a tornado or makes it rain in the desert. I'm like, dude, you don't even know what you're doing. You're like – climate change man now, yeah. you know, Thanks, like Superman, like, are you even a scientist, Superman? Batman's a scientist, but what are you doing up there? You're just moving tornadoes around. Like yeah. Yeah. Superman doesn't know what he's doing. He's just a, he's a big boy scout. He means well, but, uh, you know, I think we're all Superman. We don't know what we're doing. Uh, Ubermensch maybe. Uh, that was actually a Nietzsche reference, not a Nazi reference. There's not really a difference anymore. Ouch. We will save our lengthy denigrations of Superman for a future uh, installment. But can you explain exactly why the European Starling belongs in the omnibus? I love the story of one man's folly becoming something that we just see on an everyday basis. You know, hun the hundreds of Starlings squawking and crapping their way through our neighborhoods uh, just as a, as a snowball rolling out of one guy's, not even hubris, because he didn't even... He wasn't even aware that this was his life's work, I think. Just one guy's whim. It's almost worse. It's just a beautiful story about the, uh, the implications of our actions and the, the far-reaching effects we can have. Maybe it would have been nice to have a story about somebody who did one little good thing and it made the world so much better. But this one had more bird droppings in it. Here, here. Well, that concludes the omnibus. European starlings... Entry number 431.PS8403, certificate number 27603. In the unlikely event social media still exists in your era, our tweets are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick in ye olden times. I also maintained an Instagram account under the same name, which Ken felt was beneath his dignity. Our address for email, uh, which is a long ago and popular form of written electronic communication, was theomnibuspodcast at gmail.com. 
Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>